going to try it in two, but boy, it's going to take three more because I don't want to cheat you. And I would have had to kind of cheat you. And I would have had to go through all 12 minor prophets in one night. Your brain would have exploded and so would mine. So uh, it's going to take three more, three, counting tonight, three more. So tonight, two more Wednesdays, and then we'll be done. But how many of you have been enjoying this? Isn't this a good series? Amen. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you gave us the eternal word of God, the inerrant word, the irrefutable word, the word universally true. And we pray that tonight you will bless it to our hearts and open our understanding that we will be a congregation that knows the Bible in the name of Jesus. Can you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, tell your neighbor it's going to be good tonight. Perk up and listen. Here we go. All righty, connect the dots. Now we're going to go through quickly the Song of Songs because I did a series on that just not too long ago. And then uh, the major prophets. Now, Song of Songs. Now there's a contrast from the gloom found in the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember that book, Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes is gloomy. It's kind of depressing because Solomon is looking at everything with the under the sun perspective, which means life without God. He had no vertical perspective. Everything was this way. And boy, I could not live that way. That means you can never take anything to God. That means there's no God to ask for help, strength, wisdom, guidance. It's all you, baby. And that's where people get depressed and desperate and suicidal when it's this way. That's why everything was vanity, vanity, all, of that, all is vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes. But When you go from Ecclesiastes and jump into the Song of Songs, it goes into delight. Song of Songs literally means the finest of all songs. And Solomon is said to have written a thousand songs. Can you imagine that? You talk about a songwriter. He wrote a thousand songs. That may be a record. So anyway, Solomon is said to have written a thousand of them, but he said this one is the finest of them all. The Song of Songs. Song of Solomon. Like Esther, the Song of Songs never mentions the name of God even one time. Two books in the Bible don't, and it's those two. Esther, Song of Solomon, never say God. The theme is of the love relationship between Christ, pictured as the shepherd, and the church, pictured by the Shulamite. Now, there are three main characters. First, you do have the Shulamite, who is referred to as the beloved the beloved, and it's the leading role. Then second, you've got the shepherd referred to as the lover, and that's Christ. And third, you have Solomon referred to as the king. And in this book, he's the tempter. And boy, did I get mail on that one when it went over the air. I never heard it taught that way. Well, you should have. (laughs) All right. Throughout history, there have been different ways that people interpret the Song of Songs. There's basically three possibilities for interpretation, and they work quickly this. The literal interpretation, which states that it's between a man and a woman, period. Second, a historical interpretation, which teaches it's a picture of God and his people, Israel. 
And then the third most common interpretation, which teaches, teaches this is a picture of Christ and his church, and that's the way I approached it. The only switch we made from the way you may have commonly heard it was Solomon was the tempter and not the, the beloved and not the groom, but he was the tempter. And there's no question in my mind that's the way it was laid out. Now, next in Scripture, we come to the prophets from among God's people. Now, so far we've seen the history of God's people, and then we saw the writings of God's people, and now let's look at the prophets from among God's people. The prophets give to us a wonderful, powerful look into the mind and the ways of God. What delights him, what grieves him, uh, his long-suffering, his love and compassion, and also his anger and his wrath. You see all of that and more about God in the prophets. Without the prophets, we would not understand many things about the character of God. I can't tell you how often I read the prophets. I lived in Jeremiah for about two years, just read Jeremiah over and over again, learned so much about God, his ways, his judgments, uh, sort of the line in the sand you cross when God says, that's all I can take. I'm going to have to judge. You see all that. And, and for me, Jeremiah was a, a perfect picture of America today. The state of Israel, the state of Judah, was just, just identical to the condition of America today. What does that mean, Pastor Jeff? Well, it doesn't mean a lot of good things as far as God having to judge this nation. Now, I don't want to get heavy and get, get you down, but no way, folks, that God can't, cannot judge this nation. We need to repent. Amen? So a lot of things the prophets show us about God's character. Now, the prophets' historical context, when you find the, the writings of the prophets, the historical context was mainly during the United and the divided monarchy. Now, you remember we taught about that. With Saul, David, and Solomon, it was a united monarchy. But when Solomon died and his son Rehoboam came into power and made immediately some very unwise decisions, then it divided. Ten nations went off and became the northern tribes of Israel. The other two divided and went off and became the southern tribes of Judah. It divided. So we could say a Solomon, a divided king, left a divided nation with a divided heart. Okay? Trickle-down spirituality. So when, And then after that, you had the, the divided nation. You had the north and the south. Now, the prophets prophesied during that time period. So all those prophets, the majors and the minors, spoke to Israel and spoke to Judah while they were united and after they were divided. God raised up prophets to warn them and call them to repent. Now, it was a time of political, military, social, and economic upheaval on all fronts. Constant turmoil, constant chaos, constant trouble, constant battles and wars and attacks and intrigue and all kinds of things. It was a time characterized by much unfaithfulness to God's covenant. They just could not keep it together. Okay? 
the deterioration that we saw in the book of Judges, remember that? Where they just backslid and backslid and backslid and repented and backslid and repented and backslid and repented, like some Christians you know. Look up here at me, don't look at your neighbor. <laughs> this continued on, one king after another, after the kingdom divided, one king after another dropped the ball and was disloyal to God's covenant. Scripture records that 19 northern kings disobeyed God and did not follow the Lord. You know how many kings they had? 19. So they didn't have one righteous one in the north. And most of the southern kings followed suit. There were a couple of righteous, a few righteous, Hezekiah, Joash. There, were, there was a few righteous, but, but pretty much the southern kings followed suit as well, backslid, walked away from God, and brought the kingdom under judgment. So it was also a time of international shifts in the balance of power. As a result, we see God constantly proclaiming through the prophets his promised blessings to those who kept his covenant, as well as judgment on those who did not. You follow me? I'm going to bless you. You don't follow me? I'm going to judge you. How simple is that? Now, the prophets spoke of the future, both near and far away some reaching down to our day and past our day to the end of time as we know it. Because the prophets make it clear, time as we know it is going to end. The world as we know it is going to end. And the prophets talked about it. So, for instance, you see Isaiah speaking about things that were going on right then when he was alive in the nation of Israel as they were about to be taken over by Assyria. Because the northern tribes of Israel, the ten tribes, were taken by Assyria, Judah and the two tribes were taken over by Babylon. Both came under judgment. Israel came under judgment before Judah. But then you look at Isaiah, you read the whole book, and you see that his prophecies also reach all the way past us into the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, where the lion lays down with the lamb they beat their swords into uh, plowshares and there is war no more and Jesus rules the nations. Isaiah reaches all the way down into that. So they saw things happening that were going to happen in their lifetime or just past their lifetime and they saw things that were going to happen centuries and centuries, millennia later. And only God can do that, church. Only God knows the end from the beginning. Nostradamus why does everybody talk about Nostradamus? He missed it all the time. The prophets of the Bible never missed it. If you like Nostradamus, can I turn you on tonight to Isaiah? Okay? So far, so first let's consider Isaiah. Speaking of Isaiah. Isaiah means the Lord saves. It's very similar to the names of Joshua and Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Isaiah prophesied in the time period between 740 to 680 B.C. Now think about that. Seven centuries before Jesus arrived and 21 centuries after he's gone back to heaven. So 28 centuries after Isaiah, his prophecies are still coming to pass. That's because he spoke moved on by the God who knows from the end and from the beginning. And 28 centuries is the blink of an eye to God. A day to the Lord is a thousand years. 
And a thousand years to the Lord is as one day, Peter said. So when a millennia goes by, God says, well, there went a minute. There went a day. <laughs> Isn't he a mighty God? And, and, and so, you know, from, from 1,000 A.D. to 2,000 A.D., God said, that was a great day. Now, so he, he prophesied during the time, 746 A.D. B.C., the prophet Isaiah is widely considered to be the greatest of the writing prophets. If for no other reason, if you appreciate good writing, Isaiah's writing is splendidly beautiful. It is poetic. It's majestic. It's his, just the way that uh, he spoke, moved on by the Holy Spirit, is some of the greatest just literature in the whole history of the world. It's amazing. Beautiful, poetic language. So he's the greatest of the writing prophets, and the writing prophets were those whose messages and prophecies were written down and preserved in Scripture, and you've got them in your hand. That's the writing prophets. You'll find in the Bible other prophets who didn't write. They just prophesied and predicted things during their day, but nothing was written down. But these, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets, they all wrote down what God gave them. Now, Isaiah was evidently from a prominent family, given his ready access to the royal court in Jerusalem during the reigns of the kings under whom he served. You can read about those kings in the first chapter in the first verse. Isaiah also ministered during one of the most critical periods of Israel's history, as I said, from 740 to 680 B.C. Ooh, there's a B.C.E. in there. I didn't see that. You have to forgive me. I don't like B.C.E. You say, Why? Because it means before the common era. That's a way of pulling Christ out of your designation of history. Because it used to be B.C. before Christ. So anytime I see B.C.E., I remove it. I miss that one. Forgive me. You're stricken. I don't like any attempt to get Jesus out of history. Now, so Isaiah both predicted and witnessed the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel when it was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 and the people were led into exile. While Isaiah primarily prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah, the disaster in the north, what happened to Israel, and the warning that it held for Judah, he would always say, you see what happened to Israel, your sister? See how they were taken away by the Assyrians into bondage? Judah, if you don't repent, the same thing's going to happen to you. Try to learn from your sister. Did they learn? No, they did not. They did not learn. They watched them taken away into captivity. And not too long later in history, about a century, they were taken away. Now, interestingly, as the Bible consists of 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament, equaling 66 books in all, do you know there's 66 chapters in Isaiah? And the first 39 talk about judgment coming the judgment that was coming on God's people. And when we come to Isaiah 40, there is a completely different tone. God says, comfort my people. So watch this. The thir first 39 chapters of Isaiah are all about judgment. The second 27 chapters are all about God's comfort and hope and reassurance of a better day. You read your Old Testament, a lot, so much of it is about judgment. God is going to bring judgment. He must judge sin. All the different things that happen in the 
as judgment-wise in the history of God's people, but then you come to the New Testament, and what is it? Restoration, love, a better day is here because God has sent Messiah. Isn't that interesting? Amen. Now we find four major themes in the book of Isaiah. First, the Lord is, say it with me, the Holy One of Israel. That's one of the great themes of Isaiah. He's the Holy One of Israel. Now this phrase is mentioned 30 different times by Isaiah the prophet. God is holy, and therefore he requires his people to be holy. Now second, Israel is the Lord's holy people. God was holy. The second theme you see is Israel is the Lord's holy people. Now here we see a relationship between the two ideas, the Holy One of Israel with his people as the holy people of the Holy One. Now let me tell you about you. In the New Testament, God took care of our inability to be holy on our own. How many of you would like to be holy even for one week without the help of God? Come on, are you out there tonight? How many of you would like to, to try to be holy for one week without the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and without the help of God? Just in your own willpower, you're going to be holy for a week. Could you do it? No, you could not do it. So God, by the time they reached the New Covenant, Paul said the Old Testament law had acted as a schoolmaster, kind of whipping the human race into grace. Because we realized by the end of the Old Testament... There's no way I can be what God wants me to be. I had to have a Messiah, a Redeemer, a Savior who died in my place, rose from the dead, and he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. So there was a divine exchange. Jesus took our sin and gave us his holiness. So what are you today? A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a called out people. So there you go. And we see the beginning, this whole idea in Isaiah that the people of God were the holy people of God were called to be, but now we really can be. God looks at you and me and he says, holy, holy, you're holy justified, sanctified, glorified. Amen. Aren't you glad for Jesus? Now third, the third theme in Isaiah is Jerusalem is portrayed as God's holy city. Jerusalem. No wonder there's so much battle over that city. So much warfare. So much fighting and envy and and and. I mean, even today, everything is about Jerusalem. Jerusalem has become the sore thumb of the whole world. Why? Because God said, that's my holy city. And Jesus is going to rule the world from that city. The apex of God's holiness represented in the temple that is there. That place, that geographical location, that pinprick on a map is God's holy city. And fourth, the Lord is calling the Gentile nations to worship him. That's in Isaiah. I'll give you a couple of verses there. We really see an emphasis in Isaiah 56 on the Gentiles, and that's every one of us in here, right? If you're a Gentile, say amen. amen. All right, you read Isaiah 56. It's all about God reaching out to you and me. Isaiah also presents one of the richest, most stunning pictures of Jesus 
in all of prophetic scripture. Isaiah 7, he foretells the birth of Christ. A virgin shall conceive, so on and so forth. Next, we see his anointing in ministry. Jesus stood up in the temple when his ministry began, and he quoted Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. And he went through the list. He's quoting Isaiah. Isaiah predicted his birth. Isaiah predicted his ministry, his anointing, his appointing. It's all there in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, heal the sick, and so on and so forth. Then Isaiah predicts his death in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. And there's a variety of chapters in Isaiah that talk about Jesus as the suffering servant. And most notably, we know these, Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. Let's read this together. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now notice the language he used. Not we will be, but Isaiah was living in the prophetic present tense. He said, we are, we are, we are. It's done. And we believe that so much. We've got a healing room back there right now. And people are being prayed for that they would be healed because of the stripes of Jesus. And Isaiah, the great prophet, predicted this. So finally, Isaiah predicts his resurrection in Isaiah 55, 3. Isn't that powerful? And that's just skimming the, the top surface of Isaiah. It's so rich. But we must move on. Next, we come to Jeremiah. Jeremiah basically means the Lord appoints or the Lord calls. Do you believe that? His name means what God does. He appoints and he calls. You're called. You're appointed as God's children. Now, Jeremiah 1 is a picture of God calling out to Jeremiah and saying, I have a purpose for which you were born. Now, I don't believe that Jeremiah was alone. I believe God has a purpose for which you were born. Do you believe that? I believe that gives all of life meaning. That's why somebody takes their life. You know why somebody takes their life? Because they can't see any more light at the end of the tunnel. They have lost sight of the fact that God is in charge. God has something for them. And even if they have made serious mistakes, it's never over until God has had his say. And you and I were born with a purpose. And God has called us to fulfill that purpose. And I live for that purpose. I live vertically. Amen? Every day I access the vertical. I go straight to God, and it fills me with vision for the day. Now, the time period of Jeremiah's ministry was 626 to 586 B.C. The historical setting is during the last 40 years of Judah's history until its destruction at the hands of Babylon. When he started prophesying, the hourglass had been turned upside down, and there were 40 grains of sand left, each grain of sand representing about a year. When he started prophesying, the sword was hanging over Judah. The time was short. It was almost finished, kaput for them. And, I, and Jeremiah was the final call to repentance before God said, that's it. And so he stepped onto the stage of history and began to prophesy. 
Now remember that Judah, Jerusalem, and the temple were destroyed in 586 B.C., the last year of his ministry. And that is where Jeremiah ends. For 40 years, he predicts the certainty that the temple was going to be destroyed and they were all going to be taken captive. They already saw it happen to Israel. They already saw it happen to the ten tribes. But they still galloped on, almost with a national death wish. Over and over again, Jeremiah calls Judah to repent and return to covenant loyalty to God. Now, some of the key chapters are this. Jeremiah 7, which is called the Temple Address. And that's Jeremiah confronting the people of God saying, quote, you're coming to the temple over and over again, but you're missing the whole point. It's like people come to church to see your new dress or your new suit or to gossip about business. That's not why we come to church. We come to church to worship the living God and come into his presence. So, so he, he, he stood right up and addressed them and said, you're coming to the temple for all the wrong reasons. God's called you not to come and offer your sacrifices, but to hear him and obey him and walk with him. They were just going through a ritual that meant nothing. So Jeremiah rebuked them for it. Did they listen? No, they did not. Another key chapter is Jeremiah 31, which discusses the new covenant. Look what it says in verse 33 of chapter 31. Quote, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is God saying in the new covenant, I'm going to step into your soul. I'm going to operate on your heart and I'm going to give you a brand new heart and I'm going to etch my word onto your heart so that you're not obeying out of duty. You're obeying because now that's who you are. Okay? The old heart, said Jeremiah, was deeply engraved with an evil inclination to rebel against God and God's law. Look what he says. Quote, the sin of Judah, Judah's sin that's bringing them into judgment is written with a pen of iron with a point of diamond. It's engraved on the tablet of their heart. In other words, they are sinners deep down in their innermost, innermost core. They are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have gone astray. We've all turned aside. We've all gone our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The reason we had to have a Savior is because we were inexorably, irrefutably, inescapably sinful. So Jeremiah said, the day is going to come when God's going to change your heart supernaturally. So Jeremiah promises that God's going to replace this deeply engraved sinful heart with a new heart engraved with God's law written in God's own handwriting. People will obey, not because they're supposed to obey, but because they naturally want to obey. Obedience will become habitual and second nature. And this is talking about none other than being born again. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. You've got to receive a new heart. You will not get into heaven without a new heart. 
God believes in heart transplants. God is the first heart transplant surgeon. Dr. Jesus. A great Jewish doctor. Let me tell you about him. He can change your heart. How many of you can say, thank God he changed my heart? Amen. So here you are on Wednesday night in the freezing cold weather to hear about the Old Testament. What's wrong with you? What happened to you? Because look where you were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Now look where you are now. What's happened? He came into your heart, changed your heart. If any man, any woman be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and all is become new. That's what Jeremiah was pointing to. Jeremiah, just so you'll know, a little bit of trivia, is the longest book in the Bible. And you thought it was Psalms. Some people think Psalms is the longest book in the Bible, but Psalms is not the longest. It just has the most chapters of any book in the Bible. But Jeremiah is the longest book. And I would encourage you, read it. I mean, just take a pen, get up in the morning, and just read a chapter a day of Jeremiah. And tell me if you don't see America staring you in the face. America's sin, America's people, America's dilemma, America's judgments. You will. The overall structure of Jeremiah goes back and forth between Jeremiah's personal feelings and trials and what's going on in the nation. In chapter 1, he's called. In chapters 2 through 33, he speaks to the nation. And then chapters 34 through 45 records his personal sufferings, and he had a lot of them. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet because he felt what God felt. He wasn't simply an innocent bystander proclaiming judgment. Turn or burn, that wasn't him, okay? He felt the weight of Judah's sin, just like God did. Now, next we come to Lamentations. You know what Lamentations is? Lamentations is Jeremiah watching happen in front of his eyes what he had warned Judah would happen if they didn't turn. He's watching them be carried away into judgment. He lived to see the fulfillment of what God warned them through him about. It was written by Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is like Ecclesiastes in the sense it's not a very exciting book to read. It will not make you jump up and shout. Lamentations literally means, are you ready? Funeral poems. That's what it means. Funeral poems. Because that's what they are. The time period of Lamentations is 586 through 585 B.C. Right after Judah was taken into captivity. The historical setting is the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of Babylon in 586 B.C. Imagine with me for a minute the scenario here. After years of warnings, 40 years, four decades, repent, please repent, turn, I'm warning you. God's people are taken over by Babylon. I'm just going to tell you what really happened, and I'm holding back in what I wrote. I'm not telling you everything. But I want you to get the picture of how serious it is for a nation to transgress against God. Are you ready? This is rough. As the Babylonians entered the city, they began to murder, slaughter, rape, kill, torture. The survivors are taken as slaves. Jeremiah describes them being taken in chains down the streets so skinny from not eating that their skin wrapped around their bones. 
He's watching it and he's weeping. Lamentations is soaked in the tears of Jeremiah. It reveals the suffering heart of God over sin. This is why God warned them for 40 years. This man put up with everything, putting down into a, being put down into a filthy, stinking dungeon where he was put up in, in, in muddy-like substance, mire, up to his armpits and left there for days to die. He was put in shackles. He was put in prison. He was put in the stocks. He was struck. He, he paid an incredible price to bring the Word of God to them for over 40 years, and they didn't listen to him. They, cut, they, they took his writings. One of the kings he was speaking to took the writings, cut them up, and threw them in the fireplace and burned them. So much for the Word of God. Get out of here with this stuff. We're fine. Babylonians aren't going to take us. We're good. They had an incredible false sense of security, and so do we in this land. And I ask you, if God could bring Judah into judgment like this, where's America? If he could bring Israel into judgment, where's America? What a false sense of security our nation is under. You can't do what they did. What were they doing in, in, in uh, Judah? Why they come under judgment? They were killing their children. I'm telling you the truth. They were killing their children. They were worshiping idols. They were living in sexual perversion. You go through the list of what they were doing in, in Judah before they were taken into judgment. It's America today. Lamentations 3 is the climax of the book. We feel the weight of the destruction of the people of God. Yet in the middle of famine, thirst, cannibalism, that's one I didn't name, rape, slaughter, and all that was going on, listen to what Jeremiah declares. This is amazing. Listen to what he declares. Because of the Lord's great love. As a matter of fact, read this with me, everybody. Quote, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. And then one of my favorites, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. He penned, he spoke to them as they were being taken away into judgment, as we just read. Jeremiah 20, 11, I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and to give you... A hope. He told them that as they were being taken off to Babylon in chains. Seventy years later, they were released. Now Jeremiah proclaims in the middle of all this horrific suffering, great is your faithfulness, my portion is in him, I will wait for him. So you know what, folks? Even in the darkest hour, there is hope because there is God. This is an incredible picture of faith and of confidence in God's mercies. The key passage in Lamentations uh, is chapter 3, verses 22 to 24, but I just brought it down to four words. Can we say it together? Great is your faithfulness. Amen. Can we just lift our hands and look to God and say, Lord, great is your faithfulness. Can you thank him for his faithfulness over your life right now? Thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of God. Even in our dark hour, Lord, 
You are faithful. Even when we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel any longer, you are faithful. Even, Lord, when we've had letdown after letdown, betrayals and all kinds of negatives happen, yet great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning. Amen. Give him a hand of praise tonight. That's good. That's good. God is good. Now, next we leave Lamentations and arrive at Ezekiel. Ezekiel is one strange book to read. Ezekiel means God strengthens. And the time period is 592 through 570 B.C. And Ezekiel is a tough book to read, I'm telling you right now, filled with allegory, symbology, really, really uh, vivid visions that are out of this world. From the very beginning, you might be thinking, what in the world is going on with Ezekiel? What did he take? You know, a lot of cults use Ezekiel's writings because they're so seemingly bizarre to the unspiritual mind. The historical setting is that Ezekiel is prophesying to the Jews that are in captivity in Babylon. So Ezekiel was raised up to preach to them while they were in the captivity. Isaiah and Jeremiah were raised up to preach to them before they went into captivity. In 606 B.C., the Babylonians first began deporting some of the Jews, but a second group was deported in 570, and Ezekiel was included in that deportation into Babylon. Now, once he was in exile, he began prophesying to the people who were held captive. So God didn't leave them alone. He gave them a mighty prophet to encourage them while they were in captivity. The people desperately needed that encouragement. Hence, over 50 times we find Ezekiel saying, the word of the Lord came to me, and he prophesied to them. Ezekiel's twofold purpose was first to call them to repentance. He said, it's time for us to repent. We're experiencing judgment because of our sin. We must turn back to Jehovah. Second, he prophesied to inspire hope and trust. God is going to restore you. He promised. He will. It's written in the prophets. We're here for a season, but we're not in this valley forever. Hallelujah. In Ezekiel, we first have the introduction where God calls him. That's the first three chapters. Then Ezekiel predicts God's judgment against Judah in chapters 4 through 24. Then he predicts judgment against the nations in chapter 25 through 32. And finally, we see the glorious restoration of God's people in Ezekiel 33 to 48. And let me just tell you right now, Ezekiel 38 has never been fulfilled. And we are watching, I, I hate to have to spend so little time on this. But Ezekiel 38 prophesies the invasion of Israel by a confederation of nations, all Muslim, to destroy Jerusalem and Israel. It's laid out in Ezekiel 38, and the nations that Ezekiel names are all today pan-Islamic, rabidly anti-Israel, and they are unified together as we speak and are talking about destroying Israel now. And Ezekiel predicted this five centuries before Jesus showed up. He names Russia. He names Iran. He names Iraq. He names Egypt. 
He names Saudi Arabia. He names part of Germany. It's amazing. And you can watch it happening right now. Matter of fact, it is tomorrow's front page news. Ezekiel reads like a picture book. It's filled with symbolic actions, visions, and allegorical pictures. He describes a mysterious wheel within a wheel and rings full of eyes and so on. It was Ezekiel who saw the dry bones in chapter 37, and that's a great chapter too. Uh, and he shows these dried bones all separated and disheveled and separated, coming together, standing up on their feet a skeleton, then flesh coming back upon them, and then the breath of life being breathed back into them as a beautiful illustration of the restoration of Israel. He's a major prophet. As we saw with Jeremiah, Ezekiel felt the weight of what he was preaching. Ezekiel lived out his prophecy. There were things that God called him to do to illustrate what he, God, was doing among his people. We see Ezekiel playing like he's at war. We see him laying on his side for a number of days. Ouch. I couldn't do that. In his underwear. I'm just telling you. Shaving his hair and beard. Weird things. God used him that way. Acting like somebody was fleeing from war, sitting and sighing. <sighs> What's the matter with you? <sighs> God used him to speak in so many ways other than words. Okay? And enduring the death of his wife, it tore him up. Finally, we come to Daniel. And we're closing with Daniel tonight. Daniel means God is my judge. The time period is the late 6th century, 535 B.C. The historical setting is the deportation of Daniel to Babylon. So you had Ezekiel in Babylon. You had Daniel in Babylon. You had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three Hebrew children in Babylon, where he served in three different kingdoms. He served in Babylonia, and then when it was taken over by the Medes, and then was taken over by the Persians. The whole thrust of the book of Daniel is that God is sovereign over all kings. Everybody say with me, sovereign. See, we look at the world, if you look at it this way, horizontally, you say man is in control and doing what he wants. But when you look at the world vertically, through the eyes of Scripture, you say man doesn't do one thing that God doesn't let him do. And that's the fact. And that Daniel shows us that more than almost any book in the Bible. This is why we see King Darius, king of the Medes, saying the God of Daniel should be praised. And in the account of the three Hebrew children thrown into the burning fiery oven where the fourth man showed up and they were delivered from the fire, not even burned, we find King Nebuchadnezzar saying the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego needs to be praised. The message of Daniel is that God is sovereign over all Things, people, nations, events, history. God is sovereign. The summary of Daniel is this. First, a personal history of Babylonian court stories in Daniel 1 through 6. Then we have prophetic ministry through amazing apocalyptic visions in Daniel 7 through 12. Part of Daniel is still not fulfilled. He predicted the coming of the Antichrist. He predicted 
the abomination of desolation in the rebuilt temple. It's not even rebuilt yet. He predicted many things that are forming and shaping up to be fulfilled in our day. It's amazing. 26 centuries after he predicted it. Then we have prophetic ministry through amazing apocalyptic uh, visions in Daniel 7 through 12. In fact, Daniel 7 through 12 could be described as the revelation in the Old Testament. John's revelation in the New. Daniel is the Old Testament book of Revelation. These chapters provide apocalyptic visions of what is coming in the end times. And the implications of Daniel are significant to understanding the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, you can't understand Revelation without going back to Daniel and reading Daniel. You can't. Like I've told you before, the Bible is unified. Okay? It does not contradict itself. It's not. There we go. Okay. We almost made it to the end. All right. In fact, Daniel 7, I already said that. Amen. Daniel's prophecy covers the time. Here's how far his prophecy covers. The captivity of Jerusalem to Jesus' return to earth to judge the nations and establish his kingdom. His prophecies cover the gamut of history. Amazing. We're done. Can we stand together tonight? You were so good to let me get that done. How many of you were blessed? Isn't it good to see the Bible unfold for us and connect? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word of God tonight. Thank you, Lord, that we are watching the word of God fulfilled in front of our eyes. Thank you, Lord, that it's not an old, antiquated, meaningless, irrelevant book, but it is extremely relevant, meaningful, and timely. And Lord, we embrace your book tonight with all of our heart. And thank you that you have given it to us. In Jesus' name. Now, once again, can we just lift our hands towards him and say, Lord, we're in the end of time. Help my life to count for you as your return draws near. Let's lift our hands and just sing it. You're worthy of all praise. Yes, Lord. And my heart will sing how great is our God.